to Romans chapter 12. That's where we're going to be. We've been walking through the, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans over the last several months, and we're in the end of uh, Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at the second half of it, beginning in verse 9. And um, it's, a, it's a great chapter. I'll start it this way. Uh, there's a salesman that was selling vacuum cleaners, and he knocked on the door of this remote farmhouse. And the, la- the lady of the house, she answers the door, and, and the guy walks in and dumps a bag of dirt right on the floor. Now, boasted the salesman, I want to make a bargain with you. If this super-duper new vacuum cleaner doesn't, doesn't pick up every bit of this dirt, I'll eat what's left. <laughs> so the farmer's wife says, well, here's a spoon. We don't have electricity. My transition is, I think too many people go through their Christian life with all talk and no power. Lots of theology, but not much action. You know, Paul spent 11 chapters on theology, on what it is that God has done, um, how it is that he's provided salvation. What has he done to to bring peace um, so, so that we can have peace with him, we can be reconciled with him. 11 chapters showing us the glory of his son, Jesus. And at the same time, that's not where Paul ends. He begins in chapter 12 by, okay, if if God has done all of this, all these mercies of God have been poured out, this is how we should live. We We should present ourselves as a living sacrifice, not to earn anything with him, not so that he'll be more pleased with us, but that that all that God's done to bring about a radical change in our life, Paul wants us to know, hey, this radical change actually looks like something. It, it, our hearts are being transformed. Our lives are being transformed. And it does have an effect on how we live and how we see the world. And so Paul is going to get into this here in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. And it's going to be like this rapid fire of of almost proverbial statements. 30 separate statements about what a what, what a renewed mind and a, and a transformed heart and, 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 and what a living sacrifice looks like. So if you would, would you begin with me? I'm going to begin reading in chapter 12 of Romans, verse 9, and I'm going to read all the way to the end of 21. And you're, you're going to hear it. It's going to be like, a, like these you know, rapid fire um, um, comments from Paul about what our life looks like. And he begins by saying, let love be genuine. And and you think about that. That's like the title of this whole section. Love without hypocrisy. And then he's going to define it for us. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with with one another. Do not be... Haughty, 
but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray you would do what only you can do, and that is that you would take your very word that you have revealed and you have preserved. And Father, you would, by your Spirit, apply that to our hearts this morning. Renew our minds. Transform us, Father, as we seek to honor you. And we pray the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Well, I, I want to begin, as, as we think about all these phrases, these 30 phrases, I want to ask the question, how should we think about the activity of Christianity? About the things we, we do in Christianity. What, what does real practical application look like? And, and I think there are two responses to that. I think there's two ways that you can walk out of this room this morning. And one of those is a response of the flesh. A flesh-driven response that says, okay, I'm going to go out. I'm going to do better. I've got my list, my, my checklist of 30 things. Now, I'm going to start working on them one at a time. And, and I think if, if you walk out of here in your flesh thinking, okay, these are the things that I have to do, you, you might be successful for a little bit. And listen, I, I want, in some ways, that's not a bad response. Go and do that. Except it's never going to last and it won't be fully genuine. It won't be fully authentic. The response, I think, that Paul is bidding us to this response that he began back in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, where he says, listen, I, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. And, and, and by the renewing of your mind, be transformed. Be transformed. That, that this is a work of God in our lives. It, it's not a flesh-driven response. It is a spirit-empowered response. Because it is the work of the Spirit in our lives that has the power to change us, that has the power to bring about real change, where we have new affections and new dispositions and, and take on new motives. Where, where we find ourselves led into places where we would not naturally go, doing things we would not naturally do. And Paul's going to tell us, cling to those things that the Spirit is doing in our life. That is only when it becomes truly sincere, truly authentic, truly genuine as a response to what God has done. There was a 
um, president of Moody Bible um, several generations ago, back in the mid uh, 20th century. His name was Dr. Gray. And he was preaching to his students uh, there at Moody on uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And he was talking about what, what is it that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And he says this, he says, listen, to whom do we present our bodies? The text isn't, isn't, isn't super clear about that, except if you think about it in the context of all that Paul has says. Listen, you're not presenting your body to Jesus necessarily. Jesus already has a body. A glorified body, he is seated at the right hand of God in both his full deity and full glorified humanity. Jesus doesn't need your body. You're not presenting your body to the Father. He is seated on his throne. And then Gray goes on to say, he says, another, it is another who has come to earth without a body. What I am referring to is the Holy Spirit. God could have made a body for him as he did for the Lord Jesus, but he did not do so. So God gives us the indescribable honor of presenting our bodies to the Holy Spirit to be his dwelling place on earth. And it's why Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's talking about the law, not the law of Moses, but the higher law, the, the law that we're called to, a law that we can't fully achieve all on our own. And yet he points to the Pharisees in, 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 the, in the presence of all that he's teaching to. And he says, look, they've been doing the law. They've been following the Old Testament law. They've been doing it, but they've been doing it with the wrong motive. They've applied it wrongly. They've thought it is something they can do to achieve status with God. And that is completely wrong. Don't do that. And on the other hand, he's with his disciples one day and he sees this widow, this old widowed woman who takes less than a penny and offers it. And it's like time stops for his disciples and he looks and says, that, that's what I'm talking about. That's application. That's living this out. So how are we to do this? How are we to be committed to Christ as our minds are renewed? How are we to love? That's what Paul is getting at. It's interesting. If you, you just talked about spiritual gifts. If you were here last week, the, the passage just before this, the verses just before this, Paul has spelled out the spiritual gifts. And so so we, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our minds are to be renewed. We're to experience this being transformed. And, and then we're to see ourselves rightly. And, and as the body of Christ realize there's a unity and a mutuality that the Spirit brings us together. And then he talks about these spiritual gifts we've been given not for ourselves, but for those around us. And then he moves into the, to, to the topic of how do we love? Well, if you went over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is another major chapter in, in, in Paul's uh, writing about the spiritual gifts, he talks all about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you know what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is? It's about love. So listen, I can have all the spiritual gifts in the world. If I don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. 
That's what Paul is saying here. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's the beautiful prose on love. Maybe nothing more beautiful in all of literature has been written about love. Here, Paul is writing it. It's succinct. It is efficient. It is meant to drive the point home. And notice what it is. He begins by saying, let love be genuine. Really, literally, the Greek is just like the love without hypocrisy. Just three words, and one of them is a, is a definite article. The love without hypocrisy, or the love sincere, the, the love genuine. And then he's going to go on and, to, and describe it for us. To, to be without hypocrisy is meaning that you're not playing a part. You're, you're not pretending. There's no hidden agenda. And this love that he speaks of, this is agape love. Up to this point, Paul's used this five times. Four of them have been referring to God's love for us. Romans 8.28 is for those that love God. It's a little different usage of the word. But up, really, up to this point when he's been talking about agape love, he's been talking about God's love for us, God's divine love for us. Agape is this word that in the, you know, by the first century had not been used very much in ancient Greek literature. There were several words for love, eros and storge and phileo, and, and, but, but agape is one that was not used very often, and it's very likely it's the Christian church that took agape and infused it with this meaning of, of radical, other-centered love, this unconditional, without prerequisite love, and they ascribed it to God's love for humanity, God's love for those he came to save. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us it's the highest virtue, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. So, so you might think about it this way. What Paul's getting at is it's like majors and minors in college. So, so he said, one, here's the thing. Everybody's major, everybody's major in Christianity is love. Your minors are, are the particular spiritual gift you have. You major in love. And you may happen to minor in teaching, or you major in love, and you may happen to minor in hospitality. And you, but you, you, you major in love, even though you may minor in service or exhortation. Our major is love. And there's four things I want to say about it from verse 9, and then I'm going to sort of walk through rapidly the, the other statements. But, but verse 9 sort of sets the canopy over everything he's going to say. And the first thing about this is that this genuine love, this, this love without hypocrisy, it flows out of us, it, but the only way that it flows out of us is, that when, is when we embrace that it is love that is poured into us, then it can flow out of us. Listen to Romans 5.5. 5. Paul has already said this. God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And then he says, uh, just a couple of verses later in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, 1 John chapter 4, John will make the point, God is love, and you want to know what love is? If you want to know what love is, you have to look at the cross. That's how John defines love. That God sent his only son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
We didn't love him first. He loved us. There are three things I'd say about that love, though. It, it, one, it's unceasing in its pursuit. We sing the Psalms about this. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Literally, it says, surely goodness and mercy will hunt me down all the days of my life. It's unceasing in its pursuit. It's unconditional in its acceptance. Agape, love, has no prerequisite, no preparation, no preceding disposition. It is not, I love you because of who you are, or I love you because of what you do. It is I love you. Because of me, I have chosen to love you. It is unceasing, it's unconditional, it is unsparing in its sacrifice. God spared nothing to pour his love into you. Christ died for us. So true love, love without hypocrisy, genuine love, it's free. It's free from all pretense. It's free from all pretending. And God turns this on us and pours it out into us and says, okay, I want you to dispense this to the world. Which brings me to the second thing I'd say about this sort of verse 9 is that genuine love, it flows out of this understanding. Love, it's not a love that we produce. It's a love we distribute because it's been poured out to us. Now we distribute it to the world. First Thessalonians 3, Paul says this. He says, now may the God and Father himself... Our God and Father Himself and our, and, and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. In other words, what Paul is saying is, listen, may the Lord cause you to fill up and overflow with love to one another and to the world around. So, so, I say again, if you, if you walk away this morning, you think, okay, loving. All right, good, loving. I wrote that down. It's something I need to work on. I'll try harder at. Then you miss the point. It's not close to what God's called you to. It'd be like me walking out of here and saying, you know, I really need to work on being 6'3". I need to work on that. You know, I mean, so, so I can dunk a basketball. I, I really need to work on that. I'm going to really try harder at being six foot three inches. See, that, that's, that's about what we can accomplish in our own power. So see, God's point is it's not something we work at. It's something that's poured into us. We fall back into it. We allow it to be released in our life. The third thing I'd say is that genuine love, this love without hypocrisy, notice what it says. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. It abhors evil in, intensely and intentionally. So the word abhor, it is, it's this, um, uh, you could translate it, hate. It carries this intensity, the, this shocking horror at what's evil. It's more than just, look, I'm trying to stay away from evil. You know, I'm trying to avoid it. 
It's not simply just naming evil or identifying evil. What he's saying is where love is, where love is without hypocrisy, evil is abhorred, evil is hated, and it's not genuine, it's not true, it's not sincere unless it abhors evil. Jude says at the end of of his letter, he says this, keep yourselves in the love of God, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So the Bible builds the case. Hate evil. Hate evil. Cling to good. How you hate evil is by clinging to good. And you hate evil intensely and intentionally. To, to, To hate it intensely, you've got to notice it and you've got to be offended by it. Old commentator William Barclay says, our one security against sin lies in our being shocked by it. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says, Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. And goes on to describe them. I remember one night when I was in seminary, we were living in Richardson, Texas. We lived in this little small house, a little master bedroom, had a, had a little bitty bathroom off the end of it, but the, the master bedroom, bathroom were right there. It wasn't very far away. And I had gotten food poisoning. And I had never, still maybe never, have been so sick in my whole life. And I found I'm up in the middle of the night, and I'm, you know, my body is purging this food poisoning. And I'm there, um, bowed before the throne. And, I mean, I am, it it is like, I I mean, like I'm, my body is calling things up from the depth of my soul, all right? I'm purging things from childhood, all right? And I mean, and I I, I mean, it, it 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 is a loud, terrible sound. And in a moment of, of silence and beads of sweat pouring down my face, I hear the sound of my sweet wife in the, in the bed there, just, just right there, giggling. <laughs> she's pulled the covers over her head to try to keep me from hearing that she's laughing. And there I am, and I'm saying, are you, are you laughing at me? And she says, you are such a drama queen. <laughs> so I can't help it. I'm, my, I'm purging. My body is abhorring what it is that I'd eaten. It carries that kind of intensity. It is a shocking horror at what's evil. See, here's the thing. We're not... We're not horrified much anymore. We're not shocked much anymore. The world has done such a great job systematically over and over again. Every single day, every TV thing you watch, every news you read, every, every movie you see, everything you hear, it is doing everything it can not to just redefine evil, but to desensitize you to evil. Mark Kirkendall was telling, he's the, our campus pastor at the White House campus. We 
meet on Tuesday afternoons, all the campus pastors, as we talked through the passage, and he was talking about a speech that a gal had made just this back January at the Golden Globes. Maybe you saw her name's Michelle Williams. I don't know who she is, but he was telling us about it. And he, he sent me this, um, her speech. Here's what she said as she received the award. She said, this award acknowledges the choices that a person makes. I've worked hard to make a life of my own making. I wanted a life I could look back on and see my own handwriting. And one I carved with my own hands. And Mark says, you know, but the most shocking thing was this. I could not have done this, and I would never have achieved this award without using my right to choose, speaking of abortion. I implore all women to vote in your own self-interest. Now, we're not called to abhor or hate Michelle Williams. We are called to abhor that kind of evil. It's evil. It should shock us. We should have an, in, an intensity about it. We should also have an intentionality. Distinguishing our, our hatred from evil from the consequences of evil. No one argues hating the consequences of evil, but as Kierkegaard said, no man is really a good man when he is good simply because he fears the consequences of being bad. We must have an intentionality about our hating of evil. I remember my son, again, but we were back in seminary and um, in our backyard we had this plague set thing, uh, swing set deal. And he was there in the back and, oh, he's two or three years old and, and he's barefooted out there. It's a great summer day. And, and, but all of a sudden, I'm in the kitchen and I hear him screaming at the top of his lungs and I run out there and he's standing in the middle of a bunch of red ants that are all over his feet and all crawling up his legs and just biting him like crazy and he's screaming him, get him up and rub him off and rub lotion on him and you give him Benadryl so he'll sleep, all that stuff. Good parenting. And and, and so, and, but I, you know, you, as a parent, you know, lots of these things kind of happen. You, you forget about him. You don't realize. I mean, that you're, you're, you know, he remembers this. He's scarred from it. He's probably going to talk to a counselor about it someday. But I noticed about a year later, we were in uh, Shreveport at Leslie's grandmother's house. And we were sitting out on the back porch. She had this great place by the, the, the bayou. It was right out there in the backyard. But all of a sudden, Jay's out there. with was a wiffle ball bat and all that stuff. But he's over. Yeah, I said, I see him. He's over at the, at the base of this tree. And he's taking this bat, I mean, with all his fury. And he's swinging this bat, and he's at the base of the street, he's yelling, die, die, die. I mean, was, I thought, wow, he, I think he's possessed. And um, when I go over there, another examination of the deal, it's a red ant bed. I mean, he intentionally hates red ants, Right? We've got, we've got to press in to that kind of intentionality. We should find ourselves this morning convicted. I know I'm convicted. 
all the ways in which I have become insensitive to the sin and evil, not just around me, but that I'm so easily drawn into. We can't flirt with sin and escape falling into it. Well, the fourth thing I would say about verse 9, and then we'll, I'll walk you through the rest of it. Genuine love, this love without hypocrisy, flows out of us. It, it, the, this love that flows out of us, it, it holds fast to it. It clings to what is good. This hold fast, or, or maybe you have cling in your version, it implies intimacy. God is the standard of what is good and what God is doing in you as a believer through the power, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is good. How we hate evil is by clinging to the good, to the good that God is working in us, this transforming work, and we want to pursue it. We want to, we want to be sensitive to it. We want to catch a glimpse of it and hold on to it and, and cling to it and, and not let go of it. And then we want to express it in our lives. Now, notice he's going to go through. Now, in verse 10, he's going to talk about family love. It's two words here, two, two love words. One's phileo, one's storge. It's a brotherly love with family affection. This is what he's saying. Listen, the church is, I mean, the church is like this new family. It's, it's, a, it's a family that has this supernatural warmth about it. But more than even biological family. I mean, you don't get to pick your biological family. You just live with them. And you, and you love them because they're, they're part of you. And, and yet, something even greater goes on in the family of God, in this thing called the church, these brothers and sisters in Christ. There's this brotherly love with a family affection, a, a warmth that's supernatural. And we find, listen, it's not easy. It's not clean. It's messy. It's not without risk. Agatha Christie, 1977, in her autobiography, she writes this. If you love, you will suffer. But if you do not love, you will not know the meaning of a Christian life. Well, in verse... 10, the second half of it, about out honoring each other. Honor, listen, here's what honor is. Think about it this way. It's treating someone with your deeds and your words as worthy of your service, even if they're not worthy of it. You do it anyway. Some honoring, it means treating people better than they Deserve Looking out for how we can speak well of each other, how we can place honor to them. There's an old story, George Whitfield and John Wesley. Whitfield was a Calvinist theologian and great preacher. Wesley was a Wesleyan and had Arminian leanings, and, and they, they were friends. They, 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 they had come to faith at near the same time and had grown up in the ministry together and came to a place of a sharp dispute uh, where they differed greatly theologically. And thankfully, towards the end of their ministries, the end of their lives, they had reconciled that with each other personally. 
The problem was so many of their followers have never reconciled. And the story goes that one day one of uh, Whitfield's students came up to him and uh, said, hey, did you hear that, that Wesley uh, died? And, and Whitfield hadn't heard it, and he was visibly moved by it. And the student went on um, and uh, asked of Whitfield if he thought he would see Wesley in heaven. Of course, Whitfield knew where that was going, and so what he said was, no, I don't think I will see him in heaven. And so the student, with, with great excitement, says, oh, so you don't think he was saved? And Whitfield interrupted him and went on to finish. I don't think I'll see him in heaven because I think he shall be so close to Christ and I so far back, I doubt that my eye will ever catch a glimpse of him. That's what it means to honor. Whitfield disagreed with Wesley about so many things. You know, and sure was able to say to Wesley when they got to heaven, see, I told you I was right. It's a joke. It's okay. It's spring break. I get it. That's how we ought to honor. Verse 11, we, we ought to be eager, no holding back. You, maybe you could look at verse 11, this, this don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. This sort of being on fire with the spirit, but, you know, but boiling, uh, it literally means to boil, to have a burning passion. They, Wesley, again, somebody had asked him, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you prepare for, to preach? How, how, how are the crowds so responsive to the things you say? And he said, my simple preparation is this. I set myself on fire, and I find the people come to see me burn. Isn't that great? One man was describing after he'd seen the Philadelphia um, orchestra, uh, Eugene Ormandi was, was, uh, was directing it, and he dislocated his shoulder while he was directing the orchestra. And the man says, I did not know what they were playing, but he was giving all of himself to it. That's how we ought to be. Rejoicing in hope, verse 12, joy doesn't have its source in this present age to which we're, we're, we're you know, the, the this present age, our present circumstances, that's not the source of our joy. The source of our joy comes from what, what lies in the future, this future hope, this future glory. And how we take hold of that joy is by hope and by faith. Rejoice in hope. And it doesn't disappoint. It is sure. It is certain. And it allows us to then, what he says, be patient in tribulation. The word literally is endure, hold out, stand your ground. But it's not a passive term. See, we think about enduring like, you know, like when you used to play wall ball in, in elementary school. They don't play it anymore, but it's a great game. Can't play. But you missed the ball, then there was the firing squad. You remember the firing squad, Scott? You get down on the wall and you put your back there and you get the, you know, the three guys with the big iron and they throw the racquetball at you and you, know, you sort of had to patiently endure it. That's not the picture. The picture is something active. You're not just waiting, you're, you're embracing it. You, you are enduring. And what he assumes is you're going to have tribulation 
you're going to have it. You, you're, you're the citizen of a kingdom that has, that has come and is coming, living in a world that is in opposition, rebellion, and hatred against God, and yet God loves this world. But in the meantime, the world's going to hate you. If, if transformation's happening by the renewing of your mind, you're offering yourself as a sacrifice, guess what? You're going to have tribulation because the world's going to hate you because it hates him. And yet God loves the world and is seeking for every opportunity to pour his mercy and love to, to bring those that are sinners, those that are his enemies, those that are rebels and make them sons and daughters. And we have to see that. Constant in prayer. It literally means, listen, to keep us joyful by hope and actively enduring tribulation, we have to be constant in prayer. It means literally attaching yourself to prayer. Something you do all the time. Well, verse 13, generous. This is giving. Contributing from the, the word koinonia. It means fellowship. The, the basic meaning is this mutual sharing. It's realizing that even though the society around us says, listen, you have certain rights. You earn, own certain things. There are things you have and you own it. We go, oh, well, no, I mean, I get it, but no, God owns everything. I'm just a steward of everything. It's all His. And so with responsibilities as stewards, we want to contribute to the needs of the saints. It's this good Samaritan parable Jesus tells us, who's my neighbor? You know what the answer is? Everybody. The one that you come across who has need, that's your neighbor. Galatians 6, so, we ha so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. Well, verse 13, hospitable. Literally, it means pursuing the love of strangers. It means Loving those that come along your way, being hospitable. One writer said, some folks make you feel at home. Others, folks, make you wish you were there. At home. It's all right, I get it. You're back with me, right? All right. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. I can't believe this verse is there. I don't even know, I can't even fully comprehend it. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels. Unaware. This is, this is love, actually, genuinely, without hypocrisy. He also is going to go, and look, look real quick, I'll just show you, it, it, it's love in difficult situations. Our natural disposition is opposition. And yet love without hypocrisy calls for us not to respond to opposition with opposition, but graciously, empathetically, appropriately, humbly, with understanding and compassion. As believers, we're to pursue peace and grace and relationships with fellow believers and with the world around us. 
We don't have to pursue justice for ourselves. We'll find out next week. Romans 13, there is a, there is a means by which God has set up for justice to be pursued on this earth, but we don't personally seek to avenge ourselves. We're not after revenge. We can with confidence know that God holds us and protects us, and He will avenge us. At the same time, He's offering grace and mercy to a world desperate in need of His Son. Would we genuinely pursue people who we would rather avoid? That's a mark of someone who's being transformed. Verses 14 through 16. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. We kind of avoid that, right? Envy, pride, all that gets in the way of being able to rejoice with you. Or weeping with you when you weep. Gosh, all the, all the cares of my life, all the needs to protect myself, all the things that tell me, oh, don't get involved in that mess. Well, no. Things we would rather avoid transformed people find themselves naturally stepping into or supernaturally stepping into. We can't do it in our own strength. The very natural areas we would shy away from, we find ourselves supernaturally stepping into. Verses 17 and 18, pursuing peace in difficult and sometimes impossible situations. This is the mark of someone being transformed. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of the Lord. And if possible, live peaceably with, with everyone. Now notice the, the next bit, in the beginning in verse 19, we're to pursue God's kingdom. We're to extend grace rather than avenging ourselves. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself. Now, listen, I want to be real clear. This does not say, beloved, never protect yourself. You protect yourself and your family, and you're to do that. If you're in a situation this morning and you find yourself in danger, you're... You find yourself as the object of someone's abuse and mistreatment. You're to protect yourself. And if you can't do it, you know what? There's a bunch of men around here that would help you do that. The whole first hour, I'd, I'd start with, you know, Jason Chandler and Scott Killow and go from there. And, and we are to protect ourselves, absolutely. But to avenge ourselves? to seek our own justice and revenge, we, we lay that aside. That's why Paul quotes from the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He says, listen, when we, when we repay good for the evil done to us, it's like heaping coals, burning coals on someone's head. And you think, well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know. It shows up in the Old Testament. It shows up in the New Testament. Nobody's exactly sure what it means. One lady was being counseled by a husband who was, who was unloving to her, and she said, well, have you tried heaping coals on his head? And she said, well, no, but I heaped scalding water on his back. It's not what that means. It, it, what it means is this sign probably comes from Egypt. It's probably this... this, this um, um, sign the, the show of humility, which means, which means that the heap the good onto somebody brings, draws out of them a humility. 
a guilt, a, a shame. It, it, it puts them in the place of being able to, to, to finally give up, to finally say, I was wrong, so that they could receive grace. The Bible says a soft answer, a gentle answer, turns away wrath. An enemy's, enemy's hungry and thirsty means they're at a great disadvantage. Take that opportunity to bless them, not exploit them. That we would find ourselves more and more and more living out what it is that God is doing in us. I'll give you an illustration. It's an old story. A friend of mine, uh, Dwight Edwards, used to tell. It's about a boy named Chad. And Chad was 10 years old, and he moved to a new city, and he was one of those kids. He was a good kid, but he didn't have a whole lot going for him, you know what I mean? And he moves to a new school, and he doesn't make any friends right away. In fact, he doesn't make any friends at all. And day after day, he finds himself not being able to find a clique or a group, or, and his mom observes him every single day, getting off the bus and seeing other kids with, with friends and laughing and playing and always Chad's alone. And the school year goes on and, and not one friend that she can discern. It finally comes time to celebrate Valentine's Day. You know how that goes. You make Valentine's for everybody in your class and you've got a sack and they bring Valentine's and put it in your sack and you put it in their sack. And his mom was so worried. She knew that he would, he would give out valentines, but she wasn't sure he would get anything back. But Chad, man, he was excited. He, he attacked this whole thing. He told his mom, I'm so excited. Spent the next couple of days um, and had a valentine for every kid in his class. Went off to school excited that morning. His mother watched him on the bus. Her heart just laid out. So she prepares for him to come home. She's got cookies. She's got milk. She's ready for this aching heart that she's about to receive. So she's watching. The bus opens. Chad gets off the bus. And there are the other kids. They're playing and laughing. And obviously all of them have sacks full of valentines. Chad gets off. He doesn't have any. He walks through the door. And he says, she says to him, oh, Chad... And he says, oh, no, no, not one. Not one. His mom says, I'm so sorry. She says, not one, Mom. I didn't forget to give one of my friends a valentine. So that's what we're talking about. Love so amazing. Love so divine. Unceasing. Unconditional knows no bound when it comes to sacrifice. It is the love that has been poured into your heart by God. And it is meant to flow out of your life. The kind of love that can give requiring nothing in return and keeps giving and giving because you keep receiving and receiving.
If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. As I close this morning, I want to say, if you're here this morning and you've never tasted that kind of love, you've never tasted the love I'm talking about, I'll tell you the first, what you need, where you start this morning is to know that Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, was born into this world that He created to give His life for you. He died for you. And listen, if you've never personally, like of your own, trusted Jesus, you've never said, you know what, I, I'm going I'm to trust Jesus. I'm going to believe Him I'm going to believe him for the forgiveness of my sins. And, and you look solely to the cross, to, to his shed blood, to, to his death as the only payment for all the wrong that you've ever done in your life. If you've never allowed his love to come into your heart and your life, listen, right now where you sit, I invite you to trust him. Of all the decisions you'll ever make in your life, it's this the most critical decision to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, to find your eternal destiny secured, reconciled to the God who loves you, created you, wants you to know Him as a child knows their father. And if you're ready to do that, it's easy. A, a simple expression of faith, uh, uh, j- j- just a believing. You, you, you might could pray, look, I, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe you died for every one of my sins. And so by faith, I receive eternal life, not because of anything I could ever do. But God, be because of what you've done through your son Jesus. I want to live. I want to be transformed. I want your love poured out in my life. And in that moment, you've become a believer. Holy Spirit's stepped into your life now and dwells you and powers you. brings God's love to you in tangible ways and has begun even in this moment to transform you. Father, I pray this morning you would grant faith to those that don't believe. I pray, Father, this morning for all of us you would refresh us, rekindle us, bring anew the joy of our salvation Father, that we'd know the love that you have shed abroad in our hearts. And Father, I pray we'd walk out of here, not with a list of things to do, but with a love that overflows and spills on to everybody that we meet. And so we ask you to do what only you can do, and we pray the only way that we can pray, and that is in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.